0: Hey, it's Gabriel and Alex, and this is episode 12 of Life on the Brink.
1: The lizard that isn't a lizard, the Tuatara, Sphenodon Punctatus. Punctatus, <laughs> and I looked up what it means. This one, thankfully, was nice and easy.
0: <laughs> okay, so the Sphenodon part, the first bit, the genus, that's just Greek for wedged and tooth, like spheno <laughs> is the Greek for wedge and odonta or odont is tooth, right? So it's just wedged tooth. And then cool, punctatus cool. comes from yep. Latin, which is like spotted or pointy, bit of like a combination of those words, which right. is referring to the ridges. The, they've got rows of like ridged spines down their backs. And so it's <laughs> Sphenodon punctatus, which is wedge tooth, spiny, spotty. <laughs> <laughs> amazing <laughs> amazing and there's two species uh, two subspecies of these guys that we should point out they used to be called two species now they're just the one species and they're the only species in this entire order of reptiles like next to all the lizards they're their own thing and they're the only ones left there's one which is called the brothers island brothers, yep, brothers island, island. tuatara and they're considered threatened and the whole species is
1: considered at risk by new zealand's department of conservation yeah And this episode we've actually had in the pipelines for a few months now, uh, pretty much since episode three, when we were talking about kiwis and we really wanted to find some more New Zealand species to talk about. And tuatara's were pretty high up on our lists. They're just, they're (laughs) the coolest. And we found our guest
0: from some research he published along with some other colleagues in August this year, they got pretty popular and it was research about how tuatara (laughs) have super speedy sperm. And so we were very mature about this and called her up and asked her pretty much every question you're supposed to <laughs> after hearing that, uh, which is, how did you figure that out? Why is it so speedy? And why do you need to study this piece of information? <laughs> <laughs> this
1: is episode 12 of Life on the Brink, featuring the Tua Tara and reproductive biologist, Sarah Lamar. Um, well, we might as well get started. I was going to say, the first question would be, you're, you're from the States originally, yeah? What, what brought you all the way over to New Zealand?
2: <laughs> I am from the States originally. Um, so I came for this current position that I'm working, um, yeah, I really wanted to work in the lab that I work in now, which is Professor Nicola Nelson's Nikki, uh, here at Victoria University of Wellington. I wanted to work on Twitter with her, um, and so I moved. <laughs> this is all pre-pandemic, of course, um. Yep. You know, those things are easier <laughs> than we are. Much more global world. Um, yeah, so I moved over here for this for this job. So it's been um, over two years now, maybe three years.
1: Oh, nice! Mm, yeah. And so before that, like, how did you how did you get into conservation? What, what did you did you always want to work with wildlife, or how did it start? <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I um I think in this field there's a very big tendency if you ask anyone that question for them to say like since they were young they always knew. Um there's a real like a real tendency to believe that you have to be passionate like above everything else. Um, and I didn't always want to do this, not because I didn't like it, just I didn't know. Um I don't come from a family of professors or doctors or anything like that. I uh, remember my first career day in elementary school, I dressed up as a waitress because I thought that that was like, that was what I was going to do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know. You know, I had no idea. I grew up down south in the southern U.S. I was born in the Ozarks and then raised um, in Georgia, so I was always around reptiles. Just, you know, I wasn't scared of them. I thought they were really cool. I was pulling snapping turtles off the road at like four, you know? Um, But I didn't realize it was a career. I didn't know what conservation was. I had no idea. Like outdoor management. I thought that was a hobby. I loved to do it. I loved to go camping. I loved to go hiking. Um, Yeah, I didn't realize it was a career. So I um, went and got my bachelor's um, in pre-veterinary medicine because I liked animals. I thought that was the best way to help them. I was working full-time as a veterinary nurse at a 24-7 ER. I applied to veterinary school, I got in, I had an epiphany where I realized it wasn't enough for me personally. I I didn't think that it would keep me uh, kind of entertained or challenged, even though it is a very challenging career just for me personally, it wouldn't do for forever. So I kind of just hopped around and found a master's program and said, why not? I'm good at school. and I did a master's in aquatic sciences and ended up doing a lot of genetics and transcriptomics work, which I was very interested in in my undergraduate. I worked in the genetics labs. Um, yeah, and it just really like sparked a fire in me. And it was the first time I realized this could be a career. My hobby could be something that I did for a living. I had no idea. So and since then, I'm just kind of stuck with it. But I would say I'm a little bit of a late, late bloomer into the field. More so than a lot of
0: other people in the work. So conservation wasn't even something that was on your radar at that point, I guess. No, I didn't even know what it stood for.
2: No, of course not. Um, Yeah, it just wasn't for me. I didn't know. um, But now I do. And now I'm doing it. And it's kind of funny to think what, um, you know, Sarah getting ready for career day as a waitress would have thought, I guess. But (laughs) hopefully she'd be happy.
0: (laughs) How did you go from that world then to the world of Tuatara?
2: Well, in the weird insular world of academia, um, my master's committee, one of my committee members who really does good community work, um, she had gotten her PhD 10 years prior in Nikki Nelson's lab studying Tuatara. Um and I just really liked her stories, and they have stayed in contact. They're uh, colleagues now. you know, they, they do distance projects together and things, and they were starting up some things looking at male reproduction in tuatara, and they needed a student, and Jen knew me, and I met with Nikki over Zoom, which now, of course, is my first time Zooming because we'd always use Skype before <laughs> yeah. that. It was so, it's so silly now because it's all so common today. But, um, yeah, and we just hit it off, and I... Um, said why not let's go for it I moved
1: that's such a big move that's awesome but <laughs> I
2: mean I'm, you know when you're young and you can do things I think you're now my time so I did it no regrets it's been great
1: very very fair I mean I've been I mean I've only wanted to get to New Zealand for like the last couple of years now myself but uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> amazing place I mean
2: beautiful beyond you know and the reptiles here are really cool yeah really lucky
1: what so I was gonna say I don't know too much about New Zealand reptiles apart from mm. tuatara. Are there many, many other types?
2: <laughs> yeah. So not necessarily taxonomically diverse, um, lizards and tuatara. That's really the extent of it, but the geckos and skinks that are here are very diverse. If you're, if you're a marine scientist, there's also some turtles as well, but, and sea snakes. But yeah, no terrestrial snakes. Thankfully, our fauna here would not do very well with them. Um, yeah, no terrestrial turtles besides some introduced, I think, sliders um, that are released pets, but they're not like a huge problem. So that's really it.
0: Cool. Um, let's talk to Atara, uh, because I feel like... Yeah. Uh, people either don't know anything about them or just know one or two sort of fun party facts about them, and that's about it. So can you go... I mean, why are Tuatari such a cool, unique animal for a start?
2: Right. Well, I think... The most basic way that tuatara are unique is evolutionarily. So there are four reptile orders, squamates, which are going to be the things most people are familiar with, lizards and snakes, Um, and then your turtle order, testudinase, which is turtles, toruses, those kind of things, and then you have your crocodilians. And the fourth reptile order is called Rhynchocephalia, and there's only one living member of it, and that's Tuatata. So from an order-level diversity, it's a quarter of all reptile diversity. Of course, not species-level diversity, right? There's like 8,000 or something squamates alone. I don't know. Um, But in terms of that, they're the only Rhynchocephalian. So there's a lot of things that make them very distinct. From the outside, they look pretty much like a lizard. A lot of people think they look kind of like young iguanas or something. So it's not like you can really tell these things from afar. But if you get into skull morphology, a lot of dental characteristics, um, yeah, very unique from that aspect. They're also quite an old line. I mean, they get this name living fossil, which is a bit like (laughs) sticky in the, if you get into the details, it's a bit sticky um, because they're not necessarily older than it any other reptile order. It's just that they look pretty much the same as they did 250 million years ago when they Mm -hmm. derived from squamates. So we tend to kind of... That's where they get that name from. They look like the old uh, sphenodon fossils. And that's just because... They were pretty well suited then, and they're well suited now. It's not that they're, you know, uh, archaic in the sense that they're not well suited to their environment. They are. They just haven't had to necessarily change as dramatically um, from a, a structural standpoint as a lot of the other orders. Yeah. So I think from an evolutionary standpoint, that's really where a lot of their of uniqueness comes from. They're also, of course, a really important cultural uh, icon here in New Zealand to the Maori. Um, many different iwi have different relationships with them. So, an iwi is kind of like a local group of Maori, the indigenous people here. And so, depending on the iwi, of course, different relationships. It's not painted it all with one one brush, but for many, they're a taonga or a treasured species. Um, and so, there's really that aspect that makes their conservation really important as well.
1: Cool. Yeah. So I've, I saw I – I was reading um, a little bit about them. I saw that compared to other reptiles, they actually prefer a bit of a cooler climate. Yeah. Is that
2: a- Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they yeah, – true. So they have the lowest um, ideal, I guess, resting body temperature of pretty much any other reptile. Um, cool. I think they've been found – don't quote me on this number, but I mean low, low single-digit cloacal
0: temperatures, and they're out and active – Hello, hello. Low single digit temperatures, she said. Alex, was she on the money? I mean, it seems like she was pretty on the money. 5.2 degrees. It's at 40 (laughs) 40 Fahrenheit, I think I saw. So that's pretty damn cold, which is, I think, around 15 degrees colder than a lot of reptiles will operate at. So blisteringly cold for for an animal to
1: live at. They love love the chilly climates. Let's get back into it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so they, they like to be quite chilly. Um, which is handy because down here in New Zealand, right, we're often quite cold. We're our closest southern neighbor (laughs) is Antarctica. But, of course, that is a problem when we look at the warming temperatures because they're much more susceptible to heat-based exertion issues than a lot of other species. They are still ectothermic, so they can still behaviorally thermoregulate that body temperature to some degree. Um, But, of course, if it's hot everywhere, can't really escape that. Um, They're nocturnal. So that helps with that you know, quite a bit. But I think when we think about temperature in tuatara, the main kind of sticking point is that they have temperature-dependent sex determination. Which isn't unique to Tuatara, right? Pretty common in, in many reptile species. But Tuatara have a unique kind because they just like to be different. <laughs> and in Tuatara, males are produced at higher temperatures, which that is an issue when we consider a warming climate because those eggs are incubating in the ground for a very long time. So it's not just, you know, one hot day that they have to endure and, and it won't skew with the sex ratio of the clutch, the, the group of eggs that's been laid. But um it, you know, it's it's a it's a period of time. And as the temperatures here warm, those those clutches are going to continue to skew more male bias and more male bias. And we often think of course females as being kind of the limiting factor in reproduction. Which males can mate multiple times a season. Um females, you know, can't In fact, there's years usually between when an adult female tuatara can reproduce just because the whole process for them takes so long. So as we see these clutches skewing more and more male, we're basically limiting the diversity in alleles that are going to be contributed to the next generation. So that's a real problem for the long-term kind of conservation
0: yeah, we were um, just recently did an interview with a green sea turtle biologist um, who works oh, yeah. up in in Queensland, and she she was saying that they have the same thing that they're battling, where where the yeah. more and more male turtles popping out, um, and in yeah. some in some some clutches they're already getting like ninety nine percent male mm. um, hatch rates from the temperatures. But she was also mentioning she sort of accidentally stumbled on some of her own data that uh, <laughs> that she accidentally sort of captured a monsoon period yeah. in her data and, and it sort of dropped the temperatures. And so they've been wondering now if if increased monsoons and all this other weather phenomenon that will also come along with climate change will change it again, basically, and then make yeah. it even harder to predict. Are there other things, not just yeah. the average rise in temperature, are there other things you're looking at with climate change and how that could affect Tuatara's?
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe not so much weather events, but um, related to that, I think, is the fact that um, New Zealand doesn't have any native mammals. Um, Well, we have bats, but there's no predatory mammals. Mm -hmm. And so, when the first human settlers arrived, um, you know, we started getting rats, cats, dogs. Now we have stoats, weasels, all these things. And so, um, Tuatara are not unique in the sense that they suffered really sharp declines after the arrival of humans. So, they're now extirpated from the mainland, which they used to be widely distributed on. So, they're only found on offshore islands. Which really limits their ability to migrate because behavioral adjustment to climate change is something we're beginning to see in some species, right? Where they're either going up in altitude or either south or north in latitude, depending on what hemisphere you're in, Mm -hmm. to get to cooler places so they can kind of regulate those clutches or avoid weather events or... When the ecosystem of that island changes and the food web begins to collapse, they can kind of migrate. But to its a camp, because they're restricted to these islands, because they don't survive on the mainland um, outside of fenced eco sanctuaries that have been made predator free. And so that is something that we're worried about with climate change, is kind of this added complexity that comes along with being restricted to offshore islands and not being able to naturally migrate, which, you know, we don't know if they would necessarily, but we're seeing in another species and we know that they can't because I'm um, not very good at swimming <laughs> and, uh, the islands are usually quite far apart.
0: Um, yeah. so yeah. What What is the sort of history of Tuatara's then with the, the arrival of modern day humans?
2: Yeah, so New Zealand's kind of the last major landmass it's considered to be settled, permanently settled by humans. So it enjoyed isolation for a long time, even though it is a young island chain, a young landmass. Um, it, it enjoyed that isolation and a lot of the animals here, pretty much all of them are really naive. The birds will come right up to you. The reptiles, they don't run away. They just don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> um, so they're all very kind of easy prey for anything. Um, and there's just been mass extinctions and extirpations from the mainland. Um, and Tuatara, pretty much that's the same story with them. So even when the first Polynesian settlers arrived, bringing kiore. Kyore. Um, Rats, you know, made quick work of tuatara, which lay eggs and they lay in, uh, the eggs are laid in the ground for can be around 11 months. They're just sitting there. They're not guarded. Okay. Yummy, protein-rich meal. And so, yeah. And, and and also the adults, a big male, you know, a rat might not go for, but anything else is kind of fair game. The females are small and the juveniles are small, right? They're a long-lived species, so it takes them a while to get big. And so quickly we're extirpated from the mainland. Um yeah, we we'd say maybe ten percent of their historic range is what they now occupy.
1: That's a pretty depressing figure. It um, is.
2: <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, and so I guess obviously we've covered invasive predators and mm. um, and and climate change, but uh, do they mm. face any other uh, big threats?
2: I mean poaching is always a threat with reptiles. and um, I'd say that's maybe the other big one. It's to go for yeah. a lot on the black market, and they've have had some historic problems with poachers here in New Zealand. Not not as much as other species just because they are pretty protected and relegated to these places where you need permits to get to and you're watched and you have a reason to be there. Yeah. Um but that I guess is always kind of a looming threat, I think, for any type of rare reptile,
1: unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and just to, uh, I guess go back. Do we know roughly like the range of how many uh, there are left?
2: Yeah, so it's a pretty it's a pretty big range, um, <laughs> and it's actually a pretty big number. So it's maybe around thirty thousand. But the okay. disclaimer to that is is that <laughs> um, or you know the range maybe thirty to 30,000 of those um, live on one island, Takapueroa Stevens Island in the Cook Strait, um, and the other populations are pretty small, you know, small by, small by that standard, maybe a hundred adults would be a pretty good population on the other places. So when we consider the overall number doing pretty well, but when we consider the fact that the great majority of those are in one place. That becomes a bit of a risk because if anything yeah. were to happen there, um, you know, that's kind of the stable, big population that you'll see researched, um, that you'll see referenced in the Wikipedia article and everything. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a factor when we consider the fact that they are still something that really needs a big, strong conservation backing.
1: Yeah, and I can I can only imagine, like, if, if that's how many are on that one island, how many they used to be on the mainland. <laughs> I know, probably pretty Crazy. <laughs>
2: Yeah. yeah, it's a big island, but it's not that big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be yeah, really yeah. impressive to see the densities, right? They probably persisted at
0: pre human arrival, but we have no way to know. Yeah, it's funny how New Zealand has sort of um, defaulted for a lot of these threatened animals to, to keeping them on some islands where they're nice and safe. Yeah, predator-free. Predator-free, <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah. Predator-free, yeah. And then uh, sort of putting the mainland mm. off until later. Is, are there any plans to sort of doing – widespread reintroductions back into their old habitats?
2: Um, well, step one would be Predator Free New Zealand, which is a government initiative, Predator Free 2050. Um, massive, massive government effort with lots of community involvement from interest groups. Um, yeah, really pushing to remove the major mammalian invasive mammalian predators from New Zealand. And after that's accomplished, I think it opens a lot of doors for... Not just the animals here, but the ecosystems and the plants here as well. Recovery back to uh, a, a state that maybe it looked like closer to the arrival of humans.
1: I've um, I, I have been asking this question in most of the episodes now, and it's uh, it can sometimes be a little bit of a depressing <laughs> one, but <Conchal>. um,
2: <laughs> the disclaimer. Sometimes.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: but uh, do you think that the tuatara's will be ar- around in the way they are? in the next like 20, 50, 100 years.
2: Absolutely, I do. I think God. they're gonna get I think we're gonna head in the right direction.
1: That's awesome to hear. I was gonna say that's a lot, yeah. a lot less of a an confident answer I think that's the most confident <laughs> answer you've gotten to that question so far. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I think there's nowhere to go <laughs> but up. I think that the New Zealand um Department of Conservation has done some really kind of strong moves um in preserving what we have. We're aware of the major threats, mainly climate change, um, just lack of recruitment due to you know translocated populations taking a while to establish. They're a long-lived species, so the timescale that tuatara populations maybe ebb and flow at is longer than sometimes we've been monitoring these species, and so we're going to see ebbs, I think. But um, overall, they're recovering. There's a, a very kind of un, undisputed interest in their conservation. We know what we need to do. We know that they're an important species to conserve um, and people care a lot. And I think if people care, then you can do it.
1: So. Definitely the most optimistic one we've had.
2: <laughs> I mean, you have to be optimistic.
1: True. I, I mean, I
2: think. Right. I mean, I understand, of course, some things can be quite dire. But yeah, I think we have the tools and we have the knowledge, so I see no reason why we can't
0: keep going forward for the species. Is- awesome to hear. <laughs> and, and for the life cycle then of a tuatara, you sort of alluded to it there, but. If, mm. if it's that long lived, like what, what, what does a life of a tuatara look like? How, how long are they, what are they doing? What, how long are they kicking around for? What, what is that like? Right.
2: Yeah. So the, the, the lifespan is always something people really want to know about because they're quite yeah. long lived. I mean, and, and compared to other reptiles, yes, but I mean, turtle, uh, some tortoises, you know, live probably much longer than tuatara do, <laughs> um, in captivity, they've seen reproduction over a hundred years old. That's captivity. So, you know, wild population, you know, 80 might be very, very Mm -hmm. old. It's just just much harder, of course, to live on offshore islands. Like, you know, life is a lot more competitive out there. There's no standing water on a lot of these islands, much more susceptible to food ebbs and flows. But yeah, I'd say 100 is completely reasonable. They're not sexually mature until between 12 and 15 years of age. So that's really where the drop off is, is trying to get from, surviving an egg being in the ground for approximately a year to being sexually mature. That's a long period of vulnerability when you're quite small. Um, Food might be scarce and you look good to other tuatara, or (laughs) you can't find food because of the competition, Um, or maybe the weather conditions are quite extreme on these islands. They definitely are. Um, So if you can make it to 12 and 15, you know, you've kind of made it over the, the major hurdles Um, And you can expect kind of to to hopefully have some reproduction in your life. Um, I would say, yeah, like 100 is kind of the estimate that we say. But in captivity, they've seen them live longer than that for sure.
1: I guess once they get past a certain size, how do you go about aging them?
2: Yeah, I mean, you can't really. Um, (laughs) We have long (laughs) – I mean, that's the the simple answer, I guess. We have long monitoring projects where we um, have been marking individuals since – you know, maybe the 50s. So these individuals that have either pit tags or not anymore, but had toe coding done at the time,
1: um, you know, we have all those records. Hey, it's us. And we're cutting in to explain. Pit tags. You look them up. What are they? Yeah. So pit tags are passive integrated transponders or pit tags. Oh,
0: well, it stands for something.
1: Yeah. And I so I did not pick that. Neither did I. I was very surprised. <laughs> but they're basically tracking tags that don't require power. And so instead, they usually have an internal microchip that is activated when it passes close to a special antenna. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah. same,
0: similar to, I assume, what we use in dogs and cats and things.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the antenna is connected to a computer that records the identity of the tag. And so nice. you can use them to identify. <laughs> the toe coding stuff and the toe
0: clipping, as it's otherwise known, was a, a way more brutal way yeah. <laughs> of identifying lizards with, by taking different combinations of appendages, fingers, and joints... And clipping them in certain ways, they could identify <laughs> which animal was which, right? So if you tell you like, oh, left arm, it's not an arm and a lizard, but left front leg, clip off the first knuckle of the second digit and the like rear leg on the right, take out the full finger of the, the last barbaric. digit. Like, the hand. <laughs> That's how you ID them. Just, just come over along and pop off one of their friggin' toes. <laughs> Brutal, man. Conservation was a brutal thing to be in. Imagine being an endangered species in the past was was risky business. You get your toes chopped Not off. Not a fun time. Yeah. Anyway, they
1: don't do it anymore apparently. Oh, glad to say we've moved <laughs> forward. <laughs> we'll get back into it. And so
2: when I go out there and I catch an individual and it's already marked, I can see when it was tagged and I can see whether it was a juvenile. So I can estimate it was maybe 15 years of age or like that's the kind of the The uh, oldest that it would have been. Or if it was captured as an adult and I've caught it 40 years later, well, you know, who knows how old it is? (laughs) I guess probably at least 50, right? Like we just don't know. But we have these long term monitoring projects and that's really. um, How how many
0: Tuataras are on record then? Like how many do you have tracking data for? A lot. A lot.
2: (laughs) A lot. It's a very big spreadsheet. It crashes my laptop.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've got to ask, do they have like just as crazy names as the Kiwis? Because the Kiwi names that we heard were just wild.
2: <laughs> I don't name them. I don't know. People do. I'm sure people have named them. Um, I know the ones in captivity will have um, some silly names. But yeah. <laughs> the wild ones, no.
1: I try not to name
2: them. That's bad. I do. I mean, in my head, I just don't write it down, you know. <laughs> have you picked a favorite name? It's usually just where they're located, because I'm trying to keep everybody mm-hmm. straight. So it's like Log, who lives by the log. There's Plank, who lives under the plank. It's not no,
1: really that no crazy It's named after what it's sitting next to. Yeah, actually. I'm
2: just like, well, you know, okay, you know, you can tell the field tech, go get Log, you know where he is.
1: So uh, what's, a, what's an average day in the field look like for you then?
2: Yeah, so I study reproduction, so... For me, my trips will be during mating season, which the peak is in March. So the end of the austral summer, hottest kind of part of the year. Um, would be on an offshore island. So step one is get there and then find either the house or whatever you're staying in for where I work. It's a kind of guest house type thing that's on this island. Um Yeah, you usually have been out quite late, so you wake up quite late. (laughs) You, uh, you know, eat, shower, whatever, do your data, whatever you have to do. Hopefully there's water in the water barrel to shower. Um, And yeah, I'd say around, maybe for me, about 5 p.m. is when work starts. That's when the circling the island and the track starts, because I'm looking for cording that I think could turn into mating, promising cording. And yeah, that will continue until till activity stops for the night, which tends to be maybe two or three. And then if we've caught any individuals mating, um, yeah, it kind of, you know, interrupts the cycle of walking and we'll take those and work them up. Um, I'll collect all my samples and things and then release them back at the, the kind of capture location.
0: So to cording recording, what does that yeah. look like?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so they do this move called the Stolzer gang, which just means proud walk, I'm assuming German. Um, and basically, the males will find a female that has caught their eye, and they will slowly circle her, um, kind of raising and lowering their body as they go, or sometimes flashing their gape, like opening their mouth. Um, we think that it's because like, this area is quite white, and so um, the UV reflectance may be important. It may be some sort of visual signal. Um, And this can go on for a really long time and still be unsuccessful. So hard to know exactly what the female is looking for. At this point, we think it's just body size, like bigger is better, but... Females um, may only be receptive as as infrequently as once every four years, just because of the amount of time it takes to um, develop eggs and then carry eggs and then lay eggs and then basically become ready to mate again. So, this male could be doing all of this to a female who's just never going to be interested. Um, Yeah, it's kind of bad for him, you know? Um, And so they go through this big courting process. And then, if she's receptive, you know, she might do some head bobbing. Sometimes we see that. It's kind of hard to know. We don't really know exactly what all of the behavioral things mean at this point. And basically, the, the male will mount the female and they'll mate, which is basically just the male climbing on top of the female. And then he'll use his pelvis and kind of hind limbs, which are really strong, right? They're good at digging, big, big, strong legs. And he will basically twist the female's cloaca so that their cloacas touch Because tuatara, unlike any other reptile, don't have any type of intermittent organ, which basically just means no penis or hemipene. So sperm transfer is really just unlike birds in the sense that it's cloaca to cloaca. Um, And so the alignment of those cloaca by the male by turning kind of the females... Cloaca to meet his is really important because there's no other way to ensure sperm gets from A to B. Yeah, and then once that's done, the male um, seems to remain on the female for a while, probably just to make sure that the sperm enters the cloaca and it wasn't kind of doesn't run off and it, you know it's not inside. He doesn't have a, a penis to really de- deposit. So probably just make sure that sperm transfer happens. Yeah, and then they skitter off their own way. They're not a, a social animal in that sense where. There's hanging around after. Um, males will mate with the same females multiple times in a season. They mate guard. Um, so that will happen. But outside of that, there's not much, you know, interaction in the sense of like feeding the mate or anything like that.
1: So if they don't have the, this sort of like, I guess, observable, I like distinguished genitalia, how do you tell well, who's male and who's female.
2: Yeah, so so they are sexually dimorphic. So the males a okay. big male <laughs> is really big. You can just tell it's not a female, but so size yeah. is a factor. But when they're juvenile, you know, it's hard to tell and the females are quite small, so they can look very similar to a juvenile male. The main difference is head shape. If you're looking straight down from above at a male, he has a really blocky triangle head, like big wide jaw. And a female has a much more kind of narrow spade shaped head, if that makes sense. And then also the spines will be different. Both male and female have spines, but females spines tend to be, the individual spines tend to be smaller and there tends to be a gap in between the spines, whereas the males, they all touch and they're much bigger. But when they're young, it's hard and sometimes we can't sex them. Yeah, if you just see one out, you can sometimes can't tell if it's a juvenile or an adult female or a juvenile of either sex. So you have to kind of wait until they're sexually dimorphic.
1: Right. right.
2: Or, of course, you know, like an x-ray or lap 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 laparoscopy or something, but externally,
1: that's all. Me and Gabe have been wondering this question since we first came across your article. Oh my <laughs> <laughs> what do <are> you <laughs> when you're telling people about your job, <laughs> what do you tell them you do? <laughs> I say I
2: study tuatara reproduction mm-hmm. because the second you say the word like sperm, the plot is lost. Yep. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but also it's I mean people remember it, so it depends, you know?
1: Yeah.
2: It depends the aim of I'm, <laughs> is this a dinner with friends? Because it's reproduction. Is it you know, I need to make someone laugh when I say sperm.
1: <laughs> so when you're, at, I was going to say, do you actually have to interrupt them mating to collect yeah. your samples?
2: Yeah, you do. Because they don't have an intermittent organ, it's not like other reptiles where you can basically stimulate sperm deposition. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, how we collect it from like crocodiles, which is kind of the, the main species and reptiles that sperm has been studied in. But yeah, you can't you can't do that in tuatata. So we've the only way that we've ever been able to collect it. And our study that came out is the only one that's ever collected it from wild sperm and characterized um, wild tuatata. And the only one that's ever characterized tuatata sperm of any kind. Yeah. Just by interrupting mating. But they do mate multiple times within a season. And we've seen my last season, I had uh, a same mating pair that mated three times that I saw. So they're not, they're doing fine. They're in they, tape. They yep. the <laughs> second I leave, I'm sure they're back at it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they bounce back pretty quick. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's a good way to
2: say it, I guess. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, why is it so important to uh, collect and study their sperm? What, what conservation yeah, value does it have? That's kind of a big
2: question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so... Basically, reproductive science in general tends to skew towards the females. We know quite a lot about reproduction in female tuatara. And that's good because, again, they are kind of this limiting factor. But when we don't know even basic things, like previous to this, it had only been studied when excised from, I think, two deceased individuals' testes. So it had never passed through the male reproductive tract. And that that was really as far as we got. We didn't know... What the percent of viable sperm looked like in an, in an individual, we didn't know what how it moved or how fast it moved. We didn't know anything, and when you don't know any of that, you're really kind of backed into a corner in terms of some of the more I don't know. I'm going to say like up and coming kind of conservation methods, things that aren't necessarily new, but we're starting to see being used in reptiles or wild species or non you know non domestic species, things like cryobanking and gamete banking.
0: Hey, up, we're back again, real quick with this one. Cryo banking and gamete banking. Alex, the quick definition.
1: Basically, just freezing gametes—so sperm and eggs—putting them in a freezer, making sure they're ready to go. <laughs> yeah, and
0: for conservation, it's just in case you need them in the future, I guess, right?
1: Basically, a fail save. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> we'll get back to it. <laughs>
2: Because if you gamete bank an egg, you have to still incubate that egg once it's fertilized. That's difficult. It adds a layer of complexity. Whereas if you can just gamete bank sperm to conserve genetic, uh, basically, diversity, then you have to artificially inseminate uh, a female. But you don't have to worry about incubating that egg or creating an environment for that. The female basically will do that for you. And so gamete banking sperm is really becoming a way that we can basically ensure genetic diversity isn't lost in the case of these natural disasters, in the case of population declines, functional extinction. And we're seeing it in a lot of species. Of course, the, the goal is that we never need it. The goal is that these populations are just fine and we don't have to do assisted reproduction. But if you wait until you need it to do it, these things take years to figure out and it's usually too late and the clock is ticking in terms of losing that genetic diversity that's there by time you've figured out how to conserve sperm. So that's one method. The other is simply things like, you know we currently do translocations um, and kind of bolstering existing populations with an, a reintroduction of in, or an introduction of new individuals into the population. And these things aren't without risk in any species, right? There's always the risk of disease. There's the risk of individual animal welfare moving an animal every time you do it, it's a big decision. And so the possibility of maybe one day using just moving sperm, to basically inject new alleles into a population, has a lot of benefits in terms of that. We've seen that with kakapo right here in New Zealand. That's kind of the example that a lot of people may know. Um, They use the drone to carry the sperm and then artificially inseminate another kakapo. It was really cool. And it was a really kind of unique solution to a a unique solution to a unique problem. And of course, we're hoping we never have to do it. But again, yeah, these things take years to figure out. And if we wait until we need to do it, we're too
0: late. Hey, we're here again. Uh, Alex, that seemed like a story that we shouldn't have skipped over quite so quickly. <laughs> Probably should have gotten a little bit more backstory. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you found it.
1: Yeah, I, I gave it a quick look. And uh, according to Radio New Zealand, it was a world first for Kakapo Conservation. The Department of Conservation Kakapo Recovery Team used a drone to fly the flightless bird sperm across to Codfish Island. <laughs> From island to island. Yep.
0: Island to island. Crazy. (laughs) Crazy. So no longer, you don't even have to move the males around anymore. You just cut them out of the whole equation. Basically, instead of an
1: Amazon drone dropping off your package, it's dropping (laughs) off sperm. (laughs) They nicknamed it the sperm copter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's incredible. Amazing. Amazing. So the sperm was collected from a male kakapo, Arab, and Stumpy. <laughs> and it was flown by the
0: well-nicknamed sperm copter. <laughs> See, this is the role that tech has in conservation, Alex. We go from chopping the hands off lizards to flying their sperm in drones across <laughs> islands. This is real progress. <laughs> oh, God. All right. We'll jump back in.
2: So we're kind of trying to lay the groundwork for a lot of these more up-and-coming conservation techniques in wild species. Um, And then, of course, there's also just the evolutionary aspect of it. And so we're really interested in things like sperm evolution, sperm function in them. Um, It tells us a lot about birds, and it tells us a lot about us. Um, And so from an evolutionary standpoint as well, there's a great degree of interest in it from that direction.
1: Cool. I've uh, got to ask. Because I saw that in your article, they have the fastest reptilian sperm measured.
2: (laughs) Yeah, How do you
1: measure the speed of the sperm?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. Well, we didn't invent this. Um, It's actually quite simple. You just use this thing called CASA, which is computer-assisted sperm analysis software. So basically, you take the sperm sample, you put it in a specific type of Chambered microscope slide, um, and you record it with a camera, and then software does it for you. It's the same thing they do in like human sperm clinics and also, um, you know, veterinary ones, domestic cow breeding, all this kind of stuff to look at whether the sperm sample is motile, whether it's like a good sperm sample. Um, and so then we use these metrics of motility and viability to kind of measure the quality of that sperm
1: and um do you think that they they have such fast sperm because they don't have that sort of like internal fertilization
2: yeah so they do have internal fertilization but they don't have that intermittent organ to, to, to oh, yeah. um yeah no 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 worries to transfer that sperm so yeah i mean that's kind of the theory right now um I'm working up the samples from this most recent field season, which will double our sample size. So we'll see if that still holds. And sometimes it's hard to know the why <laughs> to evolution, but it definitely <laughs> would be handy if you didn't have instrument organ, if you have very fast sperm. Because, of course, anytime outside of an ideal environment, cells are fragile, sperm are going to begin to break down in the sense that they're not going to be, you know, modal or maybe viable anymore. So, the quicker they can get to an egg to fertilize, but the quicker they can get into the female's cloaca or up the female's reproductive tract into a more suitable environment, uh, the better the chance of, you know, sperm reaching the egg in good condition. So, definitely would be handy Um, and that's, I say, the leading theory right now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and so, uh, have have they? Uh, have you ever actually, or has there ever been any artificially fertilized tuatara? No, no. no
2: this is the first time that we've uh, even collected tuatara sperm from
1: right yeah, okay, individual. I that that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no <laughs> worries. Yeah, so no,
2: we're we're kind of, I guess, not behind in that, but we're just now getting to this kind of area of of considering these type of things. There's never been anything like that Um, in Tuatata and in reptiles in general, really, really kind of behind like the mammalian ball on that. Mammals are so far ahead of where we are with reproductive science um, in reptiles as a whole. And there's also a great amount of diversity, not just in reptiles, but definitely within the reptile order. So these species that have had quite a bit done, they're so distinct from Tuatata that that's not really transferable sometimes anyways. So we have a lot of work to do in the field for sure.
1: Cool. Very curious as to, um, we like we've spoken to a lot of people out in the field, but obviously you're the first person we've spoken to that focuses on reproduction. <laughs> What's your best day be? <laughs>
2: <laughs> the best day uh, is when the weather is good and it's not, you know, like 120 kilometer per hour winds on an offshore island just pelting you in the face. Um, and and something's in the air love is in the air and the tuatara are just <laughs> you know going for it yes. it's like, i guess is the radical. best way to say that <laughs> a sample sufficient night <laughs> I,
0: feel, I feel like for most scientists just a, a night where they get Good data without too much dramas is their best day. Like forget forget the the sort of atmosphere or whatever it may be. Like I feel like for a lot of scientists, their best day is just those days where just everything goes to plan. Well, that's great too.
2: I like when everything goes to plan. That's good. The days that we don't get stuck on an island or run out of food or not have water. Yeah, when there's water in the rain barrel, that's always a great day.
0: So, <laughs> so on, the flip, on the flip side, then with island life, there's got to be a lot of days where. You, you reconsider when you're an island study. Yeah, I haven't had too many
2: bad like, oh. ones, thankfully. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. But, you know, the days when it's uh, quite warm and the water is not there and there's no mating that night um, and you've been awake for maybe 20 of 24 hours, that's not like a great Oof. day. But I have to be honest, anytime I'm in the field, I am usually having a good time. I'd say the worst day are the days when you can't get the code to run and you're trying to do statistics. That's the worst day. Never in the field. If you're in the field, it's a good day.
1: Hey, so I'm just going to jump in here and say that at this point, we started the classic and ongoing segment, Sue B's Question Time. <laughs>
0: question Time's with the album. <laughs> Uh And yeah, we kicked it, We kicked off the audience questions with these ones this week. Uh, trying something fun, something different. But uh, the universe decided it was not to be. (laughs) Basically decided that uh, Tuatara's didn't want this information out there. (laughs) There is two minutes of audio that just went completely missing from our recording, never to be seen again. Uh, (laughs) So it started with asking a question about, are Tuatara's
1: venomous? That was your mum's first one. Yeah. And so basically the answer was no. But then Sarah went on to explain how they have really cool teeth. Three, actually three rows? Three rows of teeth, which is just crazy. And I wanted to know if she'd ever been bitten by, some, by one. And she said, no, she hasn't, but she knows people that have and she wouldn't recommend it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to rejoin now with the second question that you asked, which was
1: what sort of habitat do Tuataras need to survive? Um, and my mom had one final question and she wanted to say yes. what kind of habitat do they live in?
2: Yes, that's a good question. So um burrows, offshore islands, some degree of cover is kind of the short answer to that. Um they live in seabird burrows, mainly on the islands that I study them in. Um these are islands that can see one point, I think it's eight million mating pairs of fairy prions during November, October, and so there's this island's covered in burrows, and the tuatara will live in those Um, to the point where you know you you really can't walk off trail because the ground will collapse under you. It's just a a massive amount of seabirds on these offshore islands, Um, and yeah, so they live in those burrows often with some degree of canopy. You know, kind of low forest. The wind is pretty brutal. On this island, so you're not going to see a tall forest, Um, but you will find them in recovering pasture lands and stuff on the islands as well. Because, of course, like most of New Zealand, most of these islands were clear cut at one point or had sheep. So recovering, (laughs) you know, not pristine. So we don't, I guess, really know what that answer is. But yeah. yeah.
1: Cool. Uh, do, they, do they ever dig their own holes or is it mostly just they steal them from seabirds?
2: Mostly <laughs> just find them. Um, females do dig scrapes or kind of areas or can be like a little bit of a burrowy thing for their for their eggs. But typically find a seabird burrow. But they do have really strong legs, so can dig. Uh,
0: so <laughs> Melissa is uh, actually the green sea turtle researcher who I mentioned earlier yeah, um, from an earlier cool. episode. She wanted to ask uh, if there are any relatives to the tuatara that used to be in Australia.
2: Um. Yeah, rinkisophilians were widespread all the way to Europe. Um. But extant now,
1: just the tuatara, <laughs> the last of the kind. Yeah, mm-hmm, it's true.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once well, a widespread and really diverse order, so they didn't all look like tuatara. You know, mm-hmm. um. Just when it comes down to what's left today, just inodon punctatus, and then the subspecies come
0: thrive. Is there any inclination you- of why there's only this last little fortress yeah. of them left? Like, is it's were they accoated? I think relative they-
2: isolation and um luck yeah you know a lot of things have gone extinct most things have gone extinct and the tuatara I think just hung on here because they're um you know they're really kind of a the biggest predator most of the places they live um right and so yeah we're just able to survive where the conditions allowed them to and then once the next big thing came along million predators they weren't anymore Mm -hmm. and you know we could have lost them pretty quickly
1: cool i mean sad but cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah cool they're here (laughs) yeah definitely and we we just had one final uh audience question from jackie and she wanted to know about their third eye (laughs) Uh,
2: oh yes the bridal eye (laughs) yeah so the bridal eye (laughs) is another thing like the living fossil that is a little blown out of proportion in the sense (laughs) that other reptiles squamates some lizards i think have a a better developed parietal eye than tuatata do but tuatata claimed the third eye and like we're not letting it go you know it's (laughs) like our our (laughs) tagline now (laughs) but yeah it's part of the pineal it's a pineal gland part of the parietal complex that you know we have a lot a lot of animals have when they're young, you can see basically a translucent scale on the top of the heads and you can see that pineal gland, the parietal eye, um, that we think helps the circadian rhythm, maybe light sensing, possibly with detecting overhead predators because that would have been their main predator, avian. You know, there's, you know New Zealand falcons and things will definitely eat a tuatana. Yeah, but it, it becomes not visible as they get older. Um, that, you know, darkens and you can't see the parietal eye anymore. But yeah, it's just part of that complex that is found. Pretty commonly throughout birda but it sounds cool to say it with third eye. So it definitely does. <laughs> so yeah.
0: Well, to get into our last two wrap up questions, then uh, the the first thing we we always ask at the end is um, if people want to help tuatara's, uh, particularly people who you know don't live next door to them. What's the what's the best thing people can do to um, to, to help the tuatara?
2: Yeah, I think that's twofold. The first is just raise awareness um, about if you're in New Zealand, uh, the damage that predators can do, invasive mammals, um, keep your cats indoors, please, Um, and uh, do trapping in your backyard if you can. Right? Just think about the impact and how we've changed these ecosystems kind of permanently and how we can work to restore that. Um, and if you're farther away, I think just raising awareness, donating to initiatives that do come up um, through Victoria University of Wellington. We have a you know big tuatara project, but I think really it comes down to, yeah, if you're here raising awareness about about the the impact of invasive mammals and impact that we have on these ecosystems as, uh, colonizers and what we need to do to to make things a little bit more right, and you know maybe you can't you can't help Tuatara, but the native birds in your backyard maybe you can help if you do the same things. So that's my roundabout gotta, answer.
1: I gotta <laughs> ask because when I was in New Zealand, they have this beer called like Tuatara beer. Does any oh yeah, Tuatara Brewing. Yeah, yeah, does it go to the, the conservation or any of the money? For the <laughs> actually,
2: they did. They actually they did donate. So. Oh, that's to my cool. product. So I'm thank you to Brewing Company. <laughs> There's a picture of too. um Yeah, yeah. I mean it's pretty cool. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say no. We have a Tuatara Brewing t-shirt now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um
1: and the final question that we we like to ask is just if mm. you have um just a consummation message about Tuatara's or just in general that you think people should really hear. What, what, what would That's you so tough. Yeah. You can, I should have thought of this. You can take a gap. Usually there's about
0: a 30-second gap we cut out with this okay. one. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, give <laughs> me 30 seconds. I need more <laughs> seconds. <laughs> I don't know that I have one take-home, but I'll think for a second. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to say that I, I don't know that I have a major take-home, except the same thing that I said earlier, which is just that um, – it's really hard to recover native ecosystems and it's really easy to lose species and every species matters even if it's not as evolutionarily distinct even if it's not as you know maybe culturally important every species matters and um once you lose it, you can't get it back so just really do everything you can in your power you know keep your cats inside think about it clean your boots between hikes just try to be a good steward because um yeah, most of these places we live were not really made for us, you know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. that's a, I was going to say, that's a pretty good message.
2: <laughs> oh, no, thank you. If I think of a better one, I'll email it through. Yeah. <laughs> you can read it in my voice.
0: Dub it in. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, with that, thank you so much for, for chatting with
1: us.
2: Yeah, thanks. This is really fun.
1: Episode 12 of Life on the Brink was produced in the lands of the Turrbal, Yagara and Goringai people. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Our thanks to Sarah for
0: calling in from Wellington. If you want to read up on that research on speedy sperm, there's a good write-up in
1: the conversation about it uh, that Sarah was one of the authors on. Please rate and leave a review for Life on the Brink wherever you're listening to this. And find us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Brink Podcast or on Twitter at Alife on the Brink. Follow us on Instagram to submit your own questions for us to ask in these interviews. And if you've just found us, there are a whole bunch of Life on the Brinks already out wherever you're listening to
0: this. You can also find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com.
1: A huge thank you to Angus Bazina for running the website. Thanks to Carl Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. TTFN. Da Da now.